Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Recently, uh, Allie, my wife, and I watched a show, a TV show called The World's Toughest Race. Uh, 66 different teams of four set out to complete a journey through the wilderness. It included days and days of boating and hiking and biking and climbing and swimming across a rugged terrain. Uh, after the first episode, I remember telling Allie, hey, uh, I, I think I could do that. But as we continued to watch episode after episode and more and more teams dropped out of the race, and more and more competitors had to be airlifted out with helicopters. You know, the blood, the broken bones, the dehydration, the freezing cold, and the blistering hot. It all started to look less and less appealing with every episode that we watched. Uh, by the end, I thought to myself, you know what, maybe next year I'll just run a 5K. <laughs> I think that the biggest takeaway take for me as I watched this show was how people like us who are so civilized... Uh, have a really hard time functioning in the wilderness. I mean, imagine how long you would last if the power grid went down. Uh, imagine how long you would last if all of a sudden all of our fresh water sources were dried up. Uh, or even worse, imagine how long you would last if the internet stopped working, right? We are civilized dependent beings and we have a hard time understanding what it's like to be out in the wilderness or to be out in a, a dry and weary place. And yet, somehow, even though most of us have all of our needs met, I think we still do understand what it's like to be in a dry and weary place, or at least a dry and weary season. You know, we go through dry and weary seasons at work. Uh, we go through dry and weary seasons in our marriages. Uh, we go through dry and weary seasons um, with our families, with um, loneliness and isolation, with our health all of us experience wilderness in some way or another. It's that season of wandering and, and waiting, of, of hungering and thirsting, of, of looking and longing. And so the question becomes, the question that we're going to try to ask this morning is, uh, will we still worship God in the wilderness? Will we still worship God in the wilderness. Psalm 63, which you've already heard read this morning, exists to help us worship in the wilderness. 
It is kind of like a wilderness survival guide that, that would help you know how to stay alive if you got stranded out somewhere. Or, or kind of like a, a wilderness backpack that you might take on a, a long hike with you that would have the materials and the supplies and the food to keep you alive. This psalm exists to help keep us alive in the midst of the wilderness. And, and no one ever gets to choose when their wilderness experience will happen. Uh, sometimes the wilderness can come upon you when you least expect it. And so having a wilderness survival guide or a wilderness uh, backpack is great, but guess what? Uh, For those things to be helpful for us, you actually have to have purchased them before you find yourself stuck and stranded in the wilderness. So whether you're in the wilderness this morning or not, Psalm 63 has a message for all of us. Uh, The wilderness is brutal. Uh, The wilderness brings us out to the edge of our humanity, but... If we get a deeper sense of who God is, if we find that in going through the wilderness, God becomes all that we need, then our wilderness will be worth it. So we're going to pray, and then we're just going to slowly work through Psalm 63, and we're going to look at this wilderness survival guide together. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we trust that you are both the God who gives and the God who takes away, that you are who we were made for, and Lord, that our souls desperately long for you. And so I pray that you would just pour out your love into our hearts this morning, that you would refresh us, that as your people together, we would learn how to find all we need in you, Because, Lord, truly, you are all we need. And so lead us to the fountain this morning. Lead us to Jesus Christ, who is the fountain of living waters to satisfy our souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if we're going to worship in the wilderness, there's a few things we need to know. The wilderness survival guide starts with our desires. So first, we need to know that our real need is for God. If we're going to worship in the wilderness, we need to know that our real need is for God. Uh, Right here, the first thing that David David does in verse 1 is to declare his allegiance to God. He says, Oh God, you are my God. At the the very beginning, uh, David declares that he does not have fair weather faith. Uh, Fair weather faith is happy to claim God when things are going well. But when thrust into the wilderness, fair weather faith won't worship God. Fair weather faith are like Fairweather fans. They move their allegiance depending on the success of their team. Uh, Fairweather fans only find out that they are Fairweather fans when their team is no longer doing as good as they were before. And we, we, can't, we can't and we will not worship God with Fairweather faith. So right here from the outset this morning, it's just kind of meeting us right here in the face. We have a decision that we have to make. Uh, will God be our God no matter what. Will God be our God no matter what? And I think the reason that we need to just go ahead and make that decision right here at the beginning this morning is that when we find ourselves out in the wilderness, we will experience an onslaught of temptation to try to find some other thing or some other God that will promise to alleviate our pain in the wilderness. We have to 
actively denounce those other gods and, and, and actively put our trust in God and tell him, God, you are my God. Even today, even in this dry and weary place, you're the one that I look to. And when we declare God as our God, even in the wilderness, uh, we actually worship him by showing that our allegiance to him wasn't based on our good circumstances in the first place, but was actually based upon his goodness and his worthiness. Now, the reason David doesn't have fair-weather faith is because he knows that his true and real need is for God. He, go, he continues in verse 1, praying, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is feeling physically depleted. Uh, he is tired of wandering. He is literally out in a desert, hungry and thirsty. And yet, when he expresses the deepest longing of his heart, it is God himself who he seeks. It is God himself who he longs for. He sees his real need, both soul and body, to be God himself. So if we're going to worship in the wilderness, we need to know that our real need is for God. Uh, I've heard it said that when you're thirsty for something, that it actually means that your body wants uh, some ingredient in that thing. So, for example, if you're like really, really craving orange juice, then it means that your body probably needs some vitamin C. Now, I don't have the science to back that up, and I'm actually a little bit skeptical about the whole thing, but this is what I do understand, that like if you just really, really want a Coke really, really bad, you might should just drink some water instead. That, that maybe you are really thirsty, but that craving you have for a Coke is, 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 is trying, it's almost like a trick. It's like a red flag that even though you feel the desire here, it actually means that you need water. And so all, all of the needs that we sense and we feel, both body and soul in our life, are like these alerts uh, to our nerves and our brain and our heart telling us that we were made for God. Our, our bodies were made to be a temple of God, and our souls were made to, to feast upon God. And so it is in our, uh, our external needs that we actually find that it is God who we really need. It's, it's really Him underneath all those cravings we had that we long for, and that we thirst for. Now, this brings up, I think, an interesting mystery uh, in the Christian faith. Uh, we both talk about being satisfied in God, and we talk about seeking God. Uh, we talk about having God, but we also talk about looking for God. So, which is it? Are we satisfied in God, or are we seeking for God? Do we have God, or are we looking for God? And I think that Jonathan Edwards is extremely helpful in his book, Religious Affections, on this point. When he says, the more a person thirsts and longs after God and holiness, the more he longs to long. The more grace they have while in this state of imperfection, the more, more they see their imperfection and emptiness and distance from what ought to be. So while we are in this state of imperfection, the more of God that we take in, the more we actually feel further and further away from where we need to be. The more of His perfection that begins to flow through us, we actually only see our perfect imperfection more and more and more. The reason we aren't completely satisfied by God yet is not because He isn't enough. It's because we aren't yet fit to handle all that He has to offer us. And that's why David can say, you are my God. 
even while he says, I hunger for you and I thirst for you. It is the fact that God alone satisfies which fuels us to want God more and more. Now, I think this should pique our interest uh, that really the rest of this psalm is answering the question, what is it about God that makes David long for him in his wilderness experience? What is it about God that makes David crave for God in this way? And so secondly, if we're going to worship in the wilderness, we need to know where we can see God. We need to know where we can see God. Uh, When someone's wandering in the wilderness, it's not just hunger and thirst that they feel. All of their senses are impaired. And so knowing where to look and knowing what to look for are imperative. In verse 2, David keys in on this when he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In his desperation for God, David looks to God's sanctuary. Uh, A compass, as you know, is like a device that points you in the right direction. It's supposed to give you a sense of direction, even if you're out in the wilderness. Uh, It keeps us headed on the right course. David sees God's sanctuary as as like sort of a compass or like a a standing structure, a consistent marker. Uh, The sanctuary tells David where he is and where he's going, but more importantly, the sanctuary was a constant reminder of who God is. And when David sees God in the sanctuary, there are two things that he keys in on about what stand out to him when he looks at the sanctuary. The first is God's power, and the second is God's glory. Uh, David couldn't have helped but be reminded of God's power when he looked at the sanctuary, because the only reason the sanctuary was set up was because God had reached down with a mighty hand and brought his people out of the slavery of Egypt. He had dominated all the Egyptian gods. He had parted the Red Sea, and they had walked across on dry land. And so every time they would look at the sanctuary, they would be reminded that this was a powerful, mighty God that they worshipped. And we need to see God's power when we're in the wilderness. but Because when we see God's power, we remember that God is more powerful than the wilderness that we're going through. And because he's more powerful than the wilderness we're going through, he is powerful enough to carry us through the wilderness. But we also need to see uh, God's glory in the wilderness so that we can remember who life is really all about. There was no physical place that more portrayed God's full and undomesticated attributes than in this sanctuary, than in this tabernacle. The blood of the sacrifices the solemnity of the constant moving and working of the priests, the separation of different sections because of the holiness of God, and the constant smell of burning flesh. You know, walking into this place, how could you not feel the weight of, of it all? And yet, there was also constant substitutionary sacrifices for sins. There was always a refreshing fresh uh, set of bread placed on the table. There was a a constant light that was shining in the whole place, and there was this mercy seat where the very presence of God dwelled. How could you not feel the love of God in a place like this? See, the sanctuary or the tabernacle of uh, the Old Testament, it is the, the place where both God's kindness and God's severity met together in one place. Where God's righteousness and God's mercy came together in perfect union. 
where God's bigness and his power and his strength, but also his desire to be close and to be in relationship with his people came together. This is the God that we worship in the wilderness. Both the God who will kill you and the God who will kill for you. The God who you dare not come near and yet the God who demands that you come close. There's a uh, phenomenon that happens uh, in the wilderness called a mirage, and I've never experienced that out in the desert or the wilderness, but I have been driving down a road in high heat and experienced it before. Uh, Because of the atmosphere, you start to see optical illusions. Your eyes start to see things that aren't really there. And when you and I are going through the wilderness, we are going to see things that are too good to be true. Uh, You will appear to be tempted by water holes that are luring you off of your course. If we are going to worship in the wilderness, we need a landmark that is sure and steady like God's sanctuary. Well, for Christians, Jesus Christ is the sanctuary of God in whom we see the power and glory of God. Jesus Christ is the place, the very place where God's presence dwells. All that imagery that God had woven into the Old Testament tabernacle was really supposed to be pointing us forward to Jesus. You know, you had the priest, and Jesus is now our high priest. You had uh, the sacrifices, and Jesus is our sacrifice. You had the bread, and, and Jesus is our, uh, the bread that comes from heaven and satisfies his people. You had the, the light in the temple, and Jesus is the light of the world. You had the, the mercy seat, and Jesus is the place where we find forgiveness and grace. All of that imagery was but a silhouette of who Jesus Christ would be. And Jesus came, and he was God in the flesh. He was God living among us, and he came to to live, and he came to die, and he came to rise again for sinners like us. And this is why we need to see Jesus so bad when we're in the middle of the wilderness, because it is his sufferings that help us make sense of our sufferings. It is his dying that helps make sense of our death. It is his feeling forsaken by God that helps us make sense of our feeling forsaken by God. Jesus alone is the landmark, is the the compass where we see God in his power and glory, but in a way that keeps us on track, in a way that keeps us from falling victim to the mirages around us. Now, I think you'll see, after David gets a glimpse of God here in the sanctuary, the tone of this whole psalm changes. From verse 3 onward, uh, there's, a, there's a different spirit about it, uh, which leads to our third point. If we're to worship in the wilderness, then we need to know the treasure that we have in God. We need to know the treasure that we have in God. David is committed to praising God, and so he says in verses 3 and 4, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now, if I'm honest, uh, I am just stopped in my tracks when I hear this phrase, your steadfast love is better than life. What is better than life? 
What is worth more to you than your life? What would you trade for your life? We make trades all the time. Every time you purchase something, you're making a trade of some sort. So imagine yourself walking into a store and and you've got your, your life in your hands. What would you exchange? What would you trade for your very life? David is telling us that the only thing worth more than his life is God's steadfast love. He would rather die with God's love then keep on living without God's love. When modern psychology tells us that we need to learn to love ourselves, uh, they have one thing right. We do need to be loved. Uh, as creatures made to be in a relationship with God, uh, we were designed to be loved. And we know this and we see the effects of it uh, in people's lives who haven't been loved or nurtured well. But this is where modern psychology goes wrong. They put us in the place of God. The love we were made for isn't self-love. The, made we, the love we were made for is God's love. We make very poor replacements for God. Our self-love causes us to overlook blatant faults that true love would shine a light upon. Our self-love causes us to change things about ourselves that true love would actually accept. Self-love is really an excuse to become obsessed with dignifying things about ourselves that are actually dishonorable and changing things about ourselves that God actually loves and accepts. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, The Christian gospel does not teach us to hate ourselves either, but it does teach us to forget ourselves. We were made to be loved by God, by His pure and perfect love. As if self-love was the answer to our problems, then what in the world was Jesus dying for? (laughs) Jesus gave up His life so that you and I could experience something that is better than life, the very love of God. And if God's love is better than life, then treasuring His great love for us will keep us worshiping in all circumstances of life. I love the way David puts it in verse 4. After saying, because your steadfast love is better than life, he says in verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. If we have something that is better than life, then in all and in any circumstances in life, we can raise our hands and bless the Lord because He's worthy. But uh, love filling our hearts isn't the only thing that we need. It's not the only aspect of this wilderness survival guide. Uh, David now is going to point to our minds. So, you know, how are we supposed to think when we're out in the wilderness? So fourth, uh, we need to know how to set our minds on God. We need to know how to set our minds on God. Uh, The imagery he starts out with in verse 5 is is a little funny. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Imagine your soul uh, sitting down at a big table full of delicious, fatty foods and just beginning to devour all that it sees. You know, David likens the soul to a stomach. Just like the stomach can be empty or full, the soul can be empty or full. 
But verse 6 begins with an all-important word, the word when. I wonder what you might expect David to say. My soul will be satisfied when. My lips will praise you when. What would you say? Think about your life. What are you hoping will fill you? What are you hoping will make you happy? What are you trying to fill your soul full of? Well, David's when is when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. In other words, David is teaching us that there is a way, even in the wilderness, to have a satisfied soul. There is always a feast available to us, a feast for the soul. And the way that we partake of this feast is by meditating upon God himself. Now, meditation is a word that might make some of us a little squirmy. So let me explain what I mean by the word meditation. Um, I have watched some of you go out to another man's car and walk around that car with admiration, hands on your hips, hands to your mouth, hands on wiping your head, just staring at the, the shiny rims. And then you say, hey, pop that hood. And you guys popped the hood, and you stood there for 15 minutes just drooling over this hunk of metal that's sitting right there in front of you. And I've been there when some of you women just found out that your girlfriend just got engaged, and you say, oh, let me see that ring, and you ask all the questions, and you want to know all the details, and you just laugh to yourself like it was the day that you got engaged. Guys, we know how to meditate. We know how to set our mind on something and think about it and take it in and enjoy it and chew on it and marvel at it. David isn't just flatly remembering that God exists. He is turning over in his mind all the different wonderful angles and beauty and majesty and the wonder of who God is. And it's as he meditates upon God, his soul is satisfied, it's expanded, it's, it's filled He's thinking about how God is righteous, righteous in all he says and in all he does. He's thinking about how God is all-wise, that, that everything that happens in the universe passes through God's all-wise hands. He's thinking about uh, God's unity, that like you, you know how you and I are like, we're like so all over the place and we can't get our ducks in a row and our hearts just always ripped in multiple directions. That never happens with God. His mind, his will, his heart are always in perfect alignment. He's thinking about God's vastness, that God can't be contained when he looks up at the stars and he sees the planets and he goes out to the ocean and he thinks, oh my goodness, the Lord holds all of that in the palm of his hand. God is a feast for the soul. And we apprehend that feast by way of meditations of our mind. I want to share something with you that I think is really, really important. I believe that there is so little soul satisfaction because there is so little God meditation. There is so little soul satisfaction because there is so little God meditation. In Romans 8, Paul says something amazing about the mind, about your mind, about my mind. He says, for to set the mind 
on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The scripture here is telling us that to set the mind on the spirit, on God himself, is life and peace. So to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on Fox News is death. To set the mind on Instagram is death. To set the mind on college football is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And who of us here today doesn't want that? Doesn't want life and peace? So let's just get as practical with this text as the text gets. Been thinking about it this week, where he says here, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What do we do with the last hour of our evening? Uh, When you hop in your bed and you have that last 45 minutes to an hour of your day, what do you do with your mind. Uh, I just want to encourage you, if you're feeling uh, like your soul is parched, like you are hungry and thirsty for God, maybe consider unplugging that TV or leaving your phone out in the kitchen. Uh, Go buy a few note cards and begin to write some scripture verses on those note cards. And with that last hour before you go to bed every night, uh, instead of watching TV or instead of scrolling through your phone, Spend some time meditating on God's word, meditating on God's character, and just see, just see if God doesn't pour out life and peace down into your heart. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. We got a few more things to cover uh, as a part of this wilderness survival guide. If we're going to worship God in the wilderness we need to know that we are being held up by God. We need to know that we are being held up by God. Uh, in one short poetic line, David teaches us a profound theological truth in verse 8. He says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, being in the wilderness is a time when we have to hang on for dear life. We must cling to God with whatever energy uh, we have left. So what does that mean for our soul to cling to God? Cling to God is doing whatever it takes to stay close to Him. Uh, A soul that is clinging to God is ready to cut everything else in life loose to make sure that it stays connected to God. Uh, A soul clinging to God is reckless and frantic to try to get a glimpse, to try to get in the presence of the Lord. So if you're looking for one simple step, uh, we have started a prayer meeting each Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. If you want to just sacrifice a little bit of sleep to learn how to um, cling to the Lord, for your soul to cling to God, I want to invite you to come out on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. We have entered a clingy stage with my son, Benjamin. Uh, He just latches on to my wife, Allie, and just won't let go. Uh, He wraps his legs around her, he wraps his arms around her, and he even squeezes his head as tight as he possibly can down into her neck. 
And uh, Benjamin has no idea about this, but he is actually living out a profound theological truth. See, while it is true that Benjamin is clinging to Allie, the real truth is that she is holding him up. Uh, If she were to take her arm out from underneath his hiney, he would drop to the ground. The reason that anybody remains faithful to, to God is because God remains faithful to us. While it is true that David is saying he's clinging to God, he's not so foolish to think that his clinging is actually what's holding him up. He quickly adds, your right hand upholds me. If Ali let go of Benjamin, he would fall to the ground. But if Benjamin lets go of, of her, she will still be holding him up. Now I know that uh, an argument always comes up when we talk about God's all-sufficiency in this way. People say, if we tell people that it's all about God and that he's the one who holds us up, then, then people won't even try. Well, uh, I, I actually don't think that's true. Um, I don't think it's true that people who feel absolutely secure in God and are absolutely certain that he is the one who's holding them up just simply throw their hands up in the air and say, well, then I'm just not going to try. People who are totally blown away by the fact that it is God himself who has promised to meet all their needs and God himself who is going to hold them up to the very end, they are filled with the kind of gratitude and love that it takes to cling to God. If we're to use uh, the example of love, um, I've learned in my life it's really hard to love somebody else when they aren't loving you back. It's really hard to want to keep on giving and keep on holding when, when they're not reciprocating. But when someone else is loving you back, when someone else is giving you that love in return, it actually energizes your love. It makes the, the love a lighter load because the other person is meeting you in the middle. But think about how much more energizing it is to know that God is the one who's holding us up. That knowing that he's holding us up makes us want to cling to him more. It makes us want to grab onto him tighter. So I don't think it's true that people who feel absolutely secure in their salvation and feel that God alone has done everything and will do everything necessary to keep them up just throw their hands up in the air and say, well, then I'm not going to try. Just thinking about that analogy again, Benjamin clings to Allie because he knows that he can trust her. It is because she is faithful. It is because she is the one holding him up that makes him want to cling so tightly to her rather than me. (laughs) I'm a little jealous. I know it's just a season. He might be a mama's boy. I don't know. Knowing that God is holding us up motivates our clinging to him. Motivates us to want to latch on, hold tight, because he's trustworthy. Finally, as we come to a close in our scripture this morning, uh, one last but I think vital thing. If we're going to worship God in the wilderness, then we need to know that our future is secure in God. We need to know that our future is secure in God. As we read these last three verses, I want you to see how future-oriented everything is. All the language is pointing to something that will happen, that shall happen. David's in the wilderness But he gets a vision of his bright future, and it fills his heart with joy. Verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. 
But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. See, the wilderness has this power to lure us towards hopelessness. But God gives us these little glimpses of the future to fuel our hope and to to fuel our motivation to walk with him and worship him. Um, Do you know what it feels like to be in a wilderness season where it seems like there's no end in sight? Maybe you're there right now. You're in the wilderness and you're thinking, this just feels pointless. This just seems aimless. Well, this passage ends this way to to come to us this morning and say, it's not pointless, and there is an end in sight. There is a uh, mainline Christian denomination here in the United States that would be happy to leave these last few verses off of this psalm. In their lectionary, which is a collection of Bible readings that the church and the denomination puts together for their members to read. Uh, On the day when they are supposed to read Psalm 63, uh, it only prescribed and printed verses 1 through 8. And if I'm honest, partly I can understand why. These are hard verses. Uh, These are difficult things to read. Um, But when you Step, step down a little closer and you ask, why would a church do that? Why would a group of people want to chop, chop, chop the word of God off? Well, this is why. Uh, whether you realize it or not, uh, we live in the middle of two massive waves of thought which are currently offended by the truth of the real gospel. Uh, one is called moralism and the other is called universalism. Moralism teaches that basically all good people go to heaven. And universalism teaches that no matter what you've done or what you believe about God or Jesus, you will go to heaven. But neither David nor God will have anything of it. Verses 9 through 11 teach us that God has appointed a day when he will bring this world to a screeching halt. And when he does, there will be simultaneously lots of panic and lots of joy. David is not a moralist, and he is not a universalist. When all is said and done, there will be only two classes of people, but the divide won't be along moral lines, it won't be along political lines, it won't be along national lines. The line will be drawn between those who swore allegiance to God's king and those who did not. The two classes of people will be those who trusted in Jesus and and those who trusted in themselves. Neither moralism nor universalism is biblical and maybe more relevant to the message this morning, neither is actually hopeful for the wilderness worshiper. Moralism teaches you that when you're in the wilderness, that God is punishing you, that things are going so bad for you because you haven't been a good person. And universalism renders your wilderness pointless if we're all just headed to the same place and we're all just going to end up in heaven in the end, then what's the point of worshiping God anyways? We won't chop off verses 9 through 11 because it is a vital and necessary part of the gospel. False hope is no hope. 
To worship in the wilderness is to swear allegiance to King Jesus. And the promise, the vision of the bright future is joy forever. And that's what makes it worth it. That's what makes your wilderness worth it. That as you worship Jesus, you actually get a taste of his sufferings. And as you suffer with him, you become more and more aware that you are going to rise with him. And that in suffering with him, you will also experience glory with him. And neither a moralism or a universalism gives us the hope of the truth of the Christian gospel. Uh, as Allie and I watched the show, The World's Toughest Race, I noticed that the te- as teams began to drop out and as people began to need to get you know, helicoptered out of the race, that it was never the same thing. Two guys just totally wiped, up, wiped out on their bikes. Uh, two sisters just couldn't manage without any sleep. Uh, a few people's feet got so blistered that they just could not walk anymore. Uh, one man had an infection so bad in his leg that he could not bend his knee. See, we can't afford to pay attention to what we want to pay attention to and neglect what we want to neglect. We can't afford to take out of God's wilderness survival plan the things that we want and leave the things out that we don't want. We cannot underestimate the wilderness because there's a thousand different ways that the wilderness can kill us. But Psalm 63, every verse of it together, teaches us how to find all of our life and all of our joy and all of our strength in God alone. The only people who will finish this race are those who swore allegiance to King Jesus. See, He is the sanctuary that we look to. He is the proof of God's love that is better than life. He is that right hand that stands to uphold us. He is the one on whom all of our hopes and dreams hang. He is the end in sight that we so desperately need when we're going through the wilderness. The wilderness might just kill us, but if it brings us into a living and vital relationship with Jesus, then our wilderness was worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you for the images in your word. God, I pray that you would stir fresh life into us, that you would satisfy our souls this morning. God, that Palmetto Shores Church would be a church full of wilderness worshipers. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who's, who's never felt the satisfying reality of you in their life, that they would turn to your King, to King Jesus, and today, for the first time, they would place their faith in Him to find life and forgiveness. Lord, truly, your love is better than life. Help us to experience your love, to walk in your love, and to enjoy your love forever. It's in Jesus' name we continue to worship now. Amen.